0: Why are the police not arresting the people that tortured and sterilized and
1: murdered children? Why is the government covering for Who them? Now! Why is it that you're protecting the perpetrators? Yeah, when they were the ones not killing them. Why are you protecting
0: them if they were the ones that's killing them? Yeah, why are you why are you protecting the criminals? Yeah, why are you protecting the people that are killing the that killed the children? If you have children, imagine if they were if they killed your children. If you have some, it's
1: not okay.
0: And why are you
1: protecting them? They're the ones that killed the children, and then you protect
0: them.
1: And welcome to Here We Stand. This is Kevin Anadigal's strong voice. And there it was just now in all its raw purity and power, the innocent and overturning cry of a child, the power that can shock and cut through dead hearts and minds and enliven them with the simple question, why are you not stopping the people who are killing children? That's a cry that's aimed not just at the police and the courts these days, but at every single one of us. Why are you allowing the crime to continue? Well, that voice you heard in the opening recording was that of one of my own daughters on that glorious day in March, 2008, that 50 of 50 of us, actually more, but (laughs) it seemed like a whole throng of us seized the main Catholic cathedral in downtown Vancouver. And we demanded to the police that they arrest child raping priests rather than protect them. Well, The cops couldn't face my daughter that day in her pure outrage. They actually turned away from her with a shamed look on their face because they knew she was right. But of course, simply making demands to other people never changes anything. It's only when we not only shout out the truth, but then take the power into our own hands and stop the criminals ourselves. That's when justice starts to happen. That's the first step towards not simply protesting crime, but ending the entire criminal system responsible for the mass murder of children. Well, tomorrow on October 16th, we're once again rekindling that revolutionary self-empowering spark by convening a new kind of court in Vancouver, a court that will issue summary judgments against killers in church and state, child killers, and give all the people the authority to arrest them and seize their wealth and buildings. Because as we know, no one is above the law, fine in theory, but in practice it happens all the time. And one of the chief defendants in that case, that's before the court, Charles Badden windsor was disestablished legally. And as far back as 1649, when the Parliament of England said, no one is above the law and the king does not experience sovereign immunity. Any court under common law can try him. And so we remember that now. Because today on the show, we're going to be not only talking about that, but conducting a mini-educational that's going to teach all of you how to take action by drawing on the lessons of the art of war and showing how these lessons can help us right now Once we move from theory to practice, we're speaking today to that small minority of you, yet potent minority, who want to fight evil and not just discuss it. Those of you who are part of the growing leadership remnant of our common law republic movement that's banished genocidal churches, governments, and corporations from our lands and are actively reclaiming them. You can see how some of us did it that day in 2008 if you go to the latest Posting at MurderByDecree.com under ITCCS Updates for that historic footage of our church occupation. Well, today on the show, I'm accompanied by Owen Lucas from our Sister Republic movement in England. So, get out your notepad today, folks, and take down what we have to say. Take it to heart, because what you'll hear today is a practical tutorial in how to win against bigger adversaries. If you want to win, always keep in mind these two basic questions. What will hurt your enemy the most? And what will empower your own people the most? Occupying the church that day did both. It went behind the lines of the enemy, surprised them, and sparked the whole movement to acknowledge genocide in Canada. And we had a lot of fun doing it. We're all extremely empowered. So that's one lesson we're going to talk about today. You have to know yourself and know your enemy. And that's why our discussion is based on two of my books, Common Law Training Manual and the Whistleblower Manual, You can get the details from ordering them at MurderByDecree.com. And so stand by this week for more updates from our West Coast Common Law Court of Justice and its proceedings. Post it at MurderByDecree.com under ITCCS Updates. Write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com and enjoy the show. Take it to heart. We'll be back again next week.
0: And and so let's let's get into it. Number one, know your enemy, right? As it is... Right. Know your enemy as it is, and not as you imagine it to be. Now, when you look at you know this this internet, I've mentioned it a few times in in previous discussions. But you know, if you think of the internet as opposed to a, a sort of gift of technology to the public, it's it's a reconnaissance surveillance operation in order to exactly this number one know your enemy. Right? They they can find out anything right. on online, and and it's Sun Tzu in a nutshell. Provoke the enemy to reveal itself, and thereby learn its nature, purpose, and weakness. You know, it's, it's
1: it's all here online. You right. just put it in the cloud and, and you find out, right? Well, and don't forget that uh, it cuts both ways because what's on the Internet is, from their point of view, is what they they want us to see of them, right? They want to s- project a certain image of themselves, which is not borne out in, in, in reality because perfect example of something else I sent you, there's a picture of me and two Native guys standing outside the Catholic Church in Vancouver that we occupied. One of them is uh, Chief Capilano. He was the traditional elder of that area. He had evicted all the Catholic, Anglican, and United churches from Vancouver back in March 2008. (laughs) Then he made me his legal agent with a right of entry to go into these churches and tell them to get out. And that's what we began to do. And that's why the police never stopped us, because they knew we had the law on our side, right? And so... They, if if you go by their internet image, they're all powerful, and our fear of them. Oh, there's cops. We're going to get arrested. We went into that church totally unopposed by the police. We had the high ground. In fact, the reality is their power was illusory, and it faded as soon as we pushed. That's the reality we have got to focus on, not their projected image of themselves, right? And, and as you mentioned, the police. I was again thinking before before we came on air. Uh, You made an interesting
0: point a while back, a couple of months ago, about, I think it was the new model army, 1600s, and how their passion and their loyalty counted for, I can't remember the exact ratio, but was it? One one of their men counted for seven of theirs. Now, when you think about regular cops, you know, I, I grew up with a few in right. school, you know, played, played rugby for a few years with a, with a few of them. They're just they're just regular guys who, you know, just want to go to work, do as they're told and, and have a few pints on the weekend, you know, not really loyal to, to anything in particular. They're just, you know, blokes, general guys, right? And and as opposed right. to and, – and so to know that about your enemy, know your enemy, Sun Tzu, you know that, you know, these these cops – they 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 see a big group of people, you know, a, a strong and loyal and fervent group of uh, whatever you want to call them comrades, and and they they get on the boat. They they're not really all that keen about you know getting in trouble, shall we say, you know, about getting into an altercation with with a with a, a serious group of people.
1: Right, and you know that's um, the thing to realize about uh, the police. Like you say, there are these ordinary guys who have limited understanding of what they're part of. And they equate the law with a statute. That's government tells people what to do. You obey it, right? But you can educate them that the law is much more than that. It's derived from all of us. And, in fact, the, the cops, perfect example, they were told to take the shot, the COVID shot, right away. And a lot of them rebelled about that, at, you know, all over the world. They were up in arms about having to do that. So you can, just like the enemy divides and conquers us, we can divide and conquer them. And we strike at, um, you know, the, the state was, descri- I forget, I think it was Karl Marx back in the 1800s described the state as bodies of armed men. I mean, you know, it, it comes down to police and army. That's what ultimately their ultimately their power rests on, force and intimidation. When you start dividing that, what happens in every revolution? The army goes over to the, to the, to the people. And uh, that's when the power collapses. So we've got to always be appealing to these armed bodies of men and women, you know, to say, look, who are you really working for? Who are you serving? And it's, it's a battle of hearts and minds. And it's really easy to turn, especially in a time like we're living now, nowadays, right? Yeah, for sure.
0: And, and you know, they they might n- know their enemy. But what they might not know about their enemy is—is is the numbers are swelling. You know what you're saying about the police and, and the army and about how you know there's there's a division in in their ranks in terms of perception and psychology and loyalty. Goes the same for uh, frontline medical workers, for example, for for teachers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. And that classic build-up to a revolution seems to be very much in process. I'm with a, a, an old. Um, blind uh, goat herder on an island off the south coast of ireland at the moment and we're reading a book you know i'm, I'm reading it to him and and it's he's he's a, he's an old school communist and uh we're, we're reading about the um the paris commune 1871 and the russian revolution 1917 and exactly that process you know you can see it building up how this um this reduction in support and, and loyal um, defense of, of the, the central hub of the problem is, is dwindling, you know, step by step, periodically, right. incrementally. You know, people are just, just moving away from
1: the, the, the hub of the, of the problem. Well, you know, the, the amazing thing about what's happening now is in it, when you look at those revolutions in history, you always get a situation of what they call dual power. You've got the people organized, and then you've got the old state apparatus, and one's declining, one's rising. That's what we're doing now in our common law assemblies. We're deliberately creating that dual power situation, so we can say to the people, come and join us. We don't have to fight the old system. It's destroying itself. It's collapsed in legitimacy. We have to bring people over to us. And I remember there was a, one of the most beautiful things ever written about the Russian Revolution. Uh, the exiled revolutionary Leon Trotsky wrote this three-volume Book called the History of the Russian Revolution. He's a brilliant writer in that he captures the living essence of what people go through. And there was a scene he described where all the workers in uh, what's now St. Petersburg uh, they were lined up. They are all on strike. It was during World War One. Everyone was starving. They were all being conscripted to go off and die in the trenches. And they were rising up. And yet there was this mass of people. And the Cossacks were lined up. These these you know the the armed wing of the Tsarist state. They were lined up. And and they were, they were ordered by their officer to attack this mob, and the Cossacks wouldn't move. They sat there. They didn't. Def- they they just wouldn't attack the people because they were beginning. You know, a lot of them were peasants as well, and they knew the situation, and uh, they didn't like the landlords and all that. So they began to waver, and and. They wouldn't move, and they just sat there. And the demonstrators went and dove under the bellies of the horse and kind of moved around them like this water around a rock, like okay. Senso says. A beautiful symbol metaphor for what happens in a revolution—you flow around the system. And he said uh, the first steps of the revolution were unclear. They they it out of the belly of the horse, and it was just that that kind of spirit of of, of spontaneity and improvisation and. And this living transformation, and then one day the Cossacks literally turned around and left. And it's because the people got to them. And you do that by flowing around their system and using every opportunity to, to undermine, like water under rock, right? You undermine their their power at every point. And that's what we're witnessing right now, right? But it's got to become clear and organized and, and draw on these lessons of history and say we've got to do the same thing now, folks, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah,
0: it's it's the the the, the classic um, pointers to that you know situation is 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 right here you know to see and and even though censorship's another one right censorship is is a classic know your enemy uh, issue where they they're trying to um, use the the flow of information you know as you're talking about water right, flows the the flow of information to to stem the uh, the swelling numbers against them, but uh, it's it's. It's falling flat, you know. King Canute. I've said it a couple of times. You can't. You can't stop
1: the tide. The, the tide is really happening. Yeah, we we turn that tide around by like several other. Looking down that list from Sun Tzu, he says, "Never do what your enemy expects, or be led by its actions. Always do the unpredictable and strike quickly and unexpectedly where they're weakest." And that's um you know, for example, people are talking about now making arrests or doing court cases. Well, think about for a minute. Do we have the power to make arrests now? No, we don't. So, you know, to raise that expectation, you've got to mention making the arrest as kind of a propaganda point. Yeah, we, we've got to stop these people. But can we actually do it now? No. What can we do? We can, we can do something like what we did. You go in and occupy a church. You strike at what they love. And a few weeks after we started those church occupations, they buckled. The churches uh got the government to start issuing apologies in you know, all this cover-up they did, in response directly to us doing that. So think first, not the traditional way to act like protests and you know, thinking we can make arrests or even forming courts. Do we have the power to enforce a verdict yet? Well, keep asking yourself, can we do that or could something else be more effective as a way to strike it, you know, cause greater reverberations based on the fact that we may not have a lot of numbers at this point, but they're out there it's like this this gathering storm, and we've got to inspire that storm by doing effective actions, not simply what we we feel needs to be done right okay yeah that that's that's the creative aspect of it all right you know it's 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 thinking on
0: your toes, thinking on your feet you, you make the point regularly about uh, i think it's napoleon's point right that you know you you can't have too fixed a plan. Is, is this one of our points on the list, perhaps, too? Uh, you, you have, to, you have yeah. to move with the tide and, and think on your feet and, and, you know, dance depending on what's happening. And and so, you know, choosing those moments, timing it being everything, right? You, you get in the flow state yeah. and, and you, and you, you play, it, play
1: it as it goes. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the thing, too, about, like, reading, it's really important to read in history about how various guerrilla movements have succeeded. And uh, the main point of a guerrilla movement is you always act from out of the shadows. You you uh, you you you're formless. You, you don't let the enemy see you because if a bigger opponent sees you, bang, they crush you. Don't be too visible at all, but operate where you know they're weak. And um, I remember, you know, it's that there's that famous example of uh, when when Castro lands in Cuba to throw overthrow the Batista dictatorship. Okay, 1959. Um, he's got 80 guys in a boat, in a leaky boat, and they land on the south shore of Cuba, and they're facing an army of 100,000 soldiers trained by the U.S. government, right? And there's 80 of them landing on the beach, and then they their the boat wrecks, and half of them are, are lost, and Fidel and Che are sitting there in the mango swamps with 30 guys, and Fidel's all excited. He says, we've won. We've landed, because he... He knew that the thing was so tenuous, the, the Batista dictatorship was so tenuous that somebody striking at the right moment, at the key moment, like Napoleon says, there's one favorable moment, and the great art is to seize the favorable moment. He figured out that if we strike now, their whole thing is going to go down. And guess what? Within a month, they were moving on Havana. They gathered this huge momentum as they crossed through Cuba, operating out of their safe zones in the mountains, you know, um, and the army collapsed, and many of them went over to the to the rebels. And so, it's about timing and strategy, and uh, not doing what the enemy wants or expects you to do ever. Right. And, and interestingly, looking at these
0: um these historical revolutions, so you got we, we're talking about Cuba and uh, Castro, Che Guevara, this kind of thing. <laughs> Similarly with with Lenin and Trotsky, as as we've been reading uh, with with Ed the Goatheader here. here. Um, terrain right fight on your terrain and never on the enemy and get on the front foot never be defensive always look for a way to to move forwards, to to advance right well what we had back in in those days uh was a problem that seemed to crop up quite quickly was once that uh that initial uh throng of revolution had happened they then had to come to a, a decision whereby do we stop and consolidate Castro Lenin, or do we right. continue try and make it an international thing? Uh, uh, che Guevara and Trotsky, right? And and the right. problem they got to was that the consolidators seemed to be actually similarly with the Paris Commune in eighteen seventy one. The 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 soldiers at Versailles, they um, unlike the Cossacks in Russia, they waded on in, and there was a hell of a lot of executions on on right. the revolutionaries right. because because they didn't yep. continue their advance, right? And so that uh problem back then perhaps doesn't uh, occur now because the terrain is the whole globe i think now so so those right. those national boundaries that you know perhaps were relevant
1: back then uh perhaps are not so much these days i don't know what you think about that well that's very true you know oh and people are certainly linked a lot more uh there's a sense of global everything now um and so yeah i think that that that's valid now the thing about Uh, Trotsky and and Che was that, yeah, they thought internationally. Trotsky had a term, permanent revolution, where uh, basically he understood the dynamic nature of revolution that eventually, yeah, you have to consolidate but on as broad a basis as possible so that it won't be extinguished. Like, revolutions tend to devour themselves. Okay, you had Stalin coming out of the revolution, like, 30 million people dead, the exact opposite of what the revolution was supposed to be about, right? Yeah. And that tends to make people cynical about political change. But the thing you realize there is that that happened because Russia had been isolated. Uh, you know, the big right. powers deliberately tried to isolate them and uh, get them to destroy themselves. In Nicaragua, the same thing happened in the 70s after the Sandinistas took over. Reagan did everything possible to crush that revolution because they didn't want it to spread. And sure enough, when you get isolated, you get a new bureaucracy, Acting not, you know, of the people, but for the people, in their name, and so again, as part of the the the, the cycle that happens, you got to expect those cycles, but but you got to keep the flame of that revolutionary idea alive, and you do that by spreading it international all the time. It, we did that in Canada. We got blocked uh, in in 2008 when they brought in the official spin. So what did we do? We went international. We started the international tribunal. You plant a thousand seeds and you, they can't put out all these brush fires. And I think that that's our general strategy, right? So how about they, they know us, you know, know your enemy. And and they
0: know that uh, a large percentage of the, the public, the population, just want to have that easy life and, and go back to sleep, go back to work, go back to the factories, go back to capitalism. And so they sort of buffer us a bit they they wait for that uh we were reading about the the arab spring stuff you know perhaps i was a little contrived and and infiltrated who, who knows but but the idea still still stands i think and and the uh, the principle still stands that they, they can just sort of uh ride the storm if you like knowing that the majority of people want to uh just just go back to work with you know a few tweaks better conditions more pay you know a couple of things like that so that Che Guevara' idea of international or what do you say, continuous revolution, needs to be sown perceptionally
1: uh, into everybody, right? Yeah, I remember I was when I first got a job. uh, There was this group. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Wobblies, the IWW. Uh, They were all over the world in the early around World War One, the industrial workers of the world, and their whole strategy is you never sign contracts with employers. Your whole movement is to unite all the laboring classes and just take over you know run the world according to the mouths of the people don't ever sign a contract with a boss well that happened in, during a rising period of confidence and yet after it dissipated you know where was the contract where was the structure there was nothing left so it, it, it and so the conservative trade unions took over and said oh yeah we'll just sign we don't want to overthrow the system we just want to sign a deal and get better wages you know bread and butter issues and eventually, the unions became incorporated into the state, so now they're just managing everything on behalf of the state and and big money. I mean, that's unions have evolved so devolved into that arm of of the state and and, and capitalism. But the thing to realize is that that's that term permanent revolution. You got to continually reinvent, reinvent. When when your revolution gets statified, um, and as a matter of fact, one of the for, in Mexico for many years, the ruling party was called the Party of the Institutionalized Revolution. That was their name. We've institutionalized the revolution now, but they were the most murderous, corrupt bunch of gangsters. And yet they play on that that C that always lies, even in the most conservative person, that is, we want change. We want to control our own lives. We don't want this system of, of misery and, and war and exploitation. We want to just change the world. But they have doubts whether that can ever happen. They've got to look at an example. And that's why the the minority have to always keep that flame alive. You know, Um in the in the ups and down times, right? We've got to be consistent all the time.
0: Number four: strike quickly and unexpectedly where your enemy is yeah. weakest. It makes makes me think of uh, Gandhi um, with with the salt yeah. mines, right? He he identified how to really uh, undermine the empire's infrastructure, uh, you know, at its at its most uh, vulnerable place, and and that sort right. of e- export and industry. With a strike, you know, I, th- I think the, there's a pun to play on words here uh, in terms of striking quickly, but but it applies, I think. And, and so Gandhi, you know, looks strategically at, at where to where him. Hunt. I would perhaps uh, posit that, that it's, it's tax in, uh, in our time. You know, we we got to strike quickly at, at their, their right. source of, uh, you know, their lifeblood money. Right.
1: That's why we say one of the first laws we passed in the assemblies in Canada was Nullify federal taxes. Um, you know it's been re- reinforced now because, as a convicted criminal body that's helping support the Vatican, we're obligated not to fund these criminal bodies. So we have the right and duty to withhold the money. But you then keep the money in the community. You 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 pull the plug. You defund the system, and you can do that on many levels. Um, and and that's what's kind of those direct actions is like what you're talking about. When Gandhi knew that the British had a lot of uh, export and import taxes on these things. And that was their lifeblood. And even if he wasn't successful, the very fact that he was challenging it sent, you know, a lot of fear through the British empire, right? The fact that he was, it's like opium in the 19th century, one third of all the revenue of the British empire came from the opium trade in China. That's why they sent in the gunboats up the Yangtze river and tried to overthrow the, the Manchu dynasties because they were threatening their, their big drug dealing import, uh, business right so find out where the money comes from in any system you're targeting and pull the plug that's the first thing people should be thinking of how to do that locally and in a bigger way right
0: yeah
1: back to number two fought on your terrain and never that on the enemy it's it's a
0: turf war yeah from from the ground form the ground of battle before it's waged and summon your enemy to it right so that that's um that aspect of of affecting their the turf. You know, you you can look at it from a, a geographical, um, locational perspective, but it, but it's it's financial too, right? That 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 turf is is their market.
1: Hit the market, right? Like what we we're just saying, but also in terms of defining an issue. Like, right at the beginning of our campaign in Canada, we said, no, this isn't about children being hit sometimes, it's about genocide. We defined it as genocide. Now, for a long time, people just laughed it off. But then eventually, why did they come around? Why has the Pope and the Prime Minister of Canada both said, yes, it was genocide now? How did a few people move those people to use that word? It, it, it wasn't just political opportunism on that fact. We set the terms of battle, and they eventually had to respond. It took years and they try to co-opt the issue all the time. But any thinking person will go, you mean they've admitted to genocide? Well, then why aren't they in the, in the docket somewhere being tried? You see, we get them to admit, to kill themselves. And we, we may not see it. The problem now is that people want quick results. Like, let's go arrest somebody. If we don't arrest somebody, we're screwed. You know, That's thinking think very short-term. Think long-term. Think in terms of decades and, and how, how our children are going to fight. How do we need to prepare our children to do this battle? based on our knowledge and experience, not how can we get a quick result, right? I mean, that doesn't ever work. Right? And, and no, you're they, they
0: certainly do that. They certainly prepare long-term. So, so they will be well aware, as we speak at the moment, that, you know, the pressure's on. There's a lot of areas collapsing. The platform is, is collapsing underneath them in a lot of places. So they'll already be preparing a couple of stages down the, down the line, down the track, to install their saboteur-infiltrating uh, foe leaders, into place, you know. Again, you can go back to history. Uh, Robespierre's one I find particularly interesting uh, with regards to the French Revolution. You know, there was the Revolution, mm-hmm. seventeen eighty nine, and then within a couple of decades, Napoleon is running a, all over Europe like uh, an emperor, as an emperor. Similarly, Stalin, Stalin, after right, after yeah. after the Russian Revolution. Oh, this was a bit of a problem. You know, we're, we're under pressure, so we're going to have to go back to capitalism. We're going to have to take all your food off you. We're going to – it was the NEP, the economic policy, uh, new economic policy, the, the war uh, – policy, economics, or whatever, and so we've got to go right back to the problem in the first place in order to uh, protect you and look after you, right, so you know, right. Che Guevara, the, the, the continual revolution, uh, we have to be on our toes because they know exactly how to strategize this uh, transitional time, right?
1: Well, you know, this leads into one of my other books we've talked about before, but to bring some of those lessons in, it was called Memoirs of a Revolutionary, and it was looking at how does society actually change? How does revolutionary change happen? We looked at you know, when, the, when the rising merchant class, the capitalist class in the 1500s and, and 1600s in England, for example, how did they take over? It wasn't in a coup. Over centuries, you know, the, the wealthy, moneyed, you know, property guys began to build up their own counter-institutions to feudalism. You know, uh, they began to bring in things. That, well, that's what the Renaissance was. That's what the Reformation was about. It was teaching people you could think for yourself, because that would help the rising bourgeois class, right? You, you know, it was those in those that liberal, democratic, capitalist system was helping them. So they had all these other institutions that they could build up alongside the old feudal institutions. It was a constant war of of, of maneuver. Um, you know, there's a good Italian writer, Antonio Gramsci, who talked about that. He fought Mussolini in that and he said uh, a rising class needs time to maneuver and establish what he called hegemony, its own hegemony, hegemony, its own way of looking at the world. That's what we've got to do. We've got to create our own counter institutions, um, you know, that, that show a different way of looking at the world. It doesn't have to be this dog eat dog cutthroat market economy. We can do it on a more cooperative basis. We can do it, you know, like the world is prepared for that. There's enough wealth in the world to feed everybody now, but it's, it's in the wrong hands. It's got to be in the hands of all the people. So how do you build up those counter-institutions? That's what history teaches us. That's where your force comes from, because Cromwell and those guys couldn't have beat the king militarily and politically unless they had have had a long history of, you know, they, they often say the English Revolution was led by the London merchant class, which is true. Guys like Cromwell and that, they were uh, landed gentry who had more ties with the, the merchants in London than they did with the old, you know, the cavaliers, the old aristocrats and, the 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 residue from the feudal era um it was a, the, these two classes battling them each other uh, and now we've got the numbers on our side we're not minority classes well 80% of the people stand by and watch and are cannon fodder for either the capitalists or the king now there's all of us we can take over the world now but we got to learn these lessons from history and apply it now to what we're going through right yeah yeah uh, you know, it's, it's it's again that psychology aspect. You know,
0: the the divide and rule. Right. You know, we could do we could do the whole uh, hour here or forty minutes here on uh, know your enemy. So so what 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 you got at the moment is I don't know if it's the same where you are, but in in London there's uh, a whole regiment of psychologists uh, working in Whitehall, civil servants, non non representative elective, uh, you know, propagandists like uh, Winston Smith from 1984 you know he he's they're they're sitting at their control desks getting all the data through the databases about how the people are, are you know moving this way moving that way psychologically and and they're 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 steering us, right? You're using the media as a rudder to move people this way and that. But if you know your enemy, if you know that's the case, if you know that your, you know, your Facebook feed or whatever it is, is, is going to be triggering you emotionally in certain direction in order to to split you into one camp or the other so that you've got, you know, on, on the low level, on the public level, you've got an enemy to fight, whether it's, you know, uh, in, na- in terms of nation, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, who knows what they, they, they pitch you against. But you know that that's going to come because they've got a, an army of, of psychologists especially to do that. You know, economics is the obvious one. You talk about the merchant class and the aristocrats, proletariats, bourgeoisie, whatever you want to say. Divide and rule. Know
1: your enemy, right? They, they do that to us in a, a big way. Right. And, you know, we uh, you were talking earlier, you know, about um, the example the other day. You said, well, would Robin Hood have used the sheriff of Nottingham's hall to hold his meetings in to plan how to overthrow the sheriff of Nottingham? Well, of course not. You know, but we use their medium, we're using the Internet, we're using all the means they're giving and we think we're voting well, No, at best, this medium is a way to share ideas. Can, can you rewind uh, uh, 20 uh, seconds, you Kevin? Know, can- this, this yeah. Yeah, we wouldn't use the sheriff of Nottingham's hall to meet in if we were Robin Hood. Yeah. be based out in the woods and strike at him when he doesn't expect and yet now we're using their medium. We're using the internet. You know, we're using all the means they provide and we think that, that that means we're fighting against them. No, we're fighting on their terrain when we use the internet. That's this effect. So we the best we can do is take the knowledge and communications we get through the internet and then start in our area, in wherever we live, to build up something off the radar that they right. can't see right away. That's people to people. That's our strength in the community. And we so in other words, this is a spark. It isn't the mean this isn't the end in itself, which is how a lot of people see the internet. Well, we just go in there and share information and no, this is at best a spark. Then we have to go back into our communities, reclaim the land. It's like that picture I showed you. We reclaimed that church. We just go in there and do it. We can do it if we start acting. But but we're kind of disabled psychologically by our, our dependency on their technology, right? yeah and and it's it's
0: this this flow of information i feel is is crucial you know this is the crux of of so much and i think they took a big gamble by giving us the internet because in order for it to be all-encompassing you know all-invasive in in everybody's lives they they needed it to to catch fire you know bushfire so that everything was you know filtered into the internet and in doing so they had to give a lot of uh leeway a lot of space for people to you know youtube videos etc etc so so they so they did give us that freedom of speech for a certain amount of time perhaps like the printing press a few hundred few centuries ago right just just before the age of revolution and so so this this internet uh and now they're censoring back they're rolling it back now and saying no you can't say that no you we're going to take these videos off and what and what we're finding is is that um you know it, it, there's too much of a bonfire happened already there's there's all that, that yeah. necessary information for for people 's perceptions to be open to and you know the, you hear the phrase regularly, I one hundred percent agree with it you know what what do you uh, what you know you can 't unknow once you find it out and and the question mark that seed of a question mark has arrived in so many people 's minds perhaps they haven 't got quite gone you know as far down the line as as you and I in terms of you know staunch uh uh, defiance of of the system, but they're on that track, and that's the important thing. And they and they won't ever get off that track because, like I say, you know, once you know, you can't unknow it. And and you get to areas then where paperwork comes in. You know, you and I have have been in uh, uh, conversations recently, discussions wh- whereby we've been looking at you know how powerful is paperwork, and and I think that's a really interesting one because you you could go back through history and, and particularly with the indigenous people you know they've learned the hard way over the centuries that paper isn't worth the ink it's printed on because we know they know their enemy we know our their yeah. enemy uh, lie through their teeth at every opportunity and if it, if it's just to buy a bit of time or whatever they'll they'll sign everything because they're a bunch of scoundrel liars
1: right Right. So, I mean, the real question comes down to, you know, we get this all the time in our common law workshops. Well, do we have the authority to do this? And I, I turn the question back. You never give an answer to people because that stops them thinking. They think, Oh, I've got an answer now. I don't have to think. No, you come back with another question. You say, well, what is authority? Where is your authority coming from? Ultimately? Is it from some guy in a room? Uh, where does it come from? And they, well, from ourselves, there's nothing. And yet we're taught that that's a bad thing. You know, we're taught that, uh, well, the word arrogant, it actually means yeah. in Italian, to claim for yourself. That's a good thing. And yet we're taught to be arrogant is a bad thing. You see, it's all the programming to make us think we always have to be dependent on something out there, a god up there, a pope, a king, yeah. or an authority, a law, always somebody else other than ourselves. When we take back that power, boom, their system already falls apart. You can see it shaking as soon as one person realizes the authority comes from me and us, organized in our own counter institution and then the rest follows right well let's let's i jumped a few here but we're up to 16 do not fear or avoid
0: hopeless situations but use them to heighten the resolve of your people dire circumstances evoke a higher courage in those who have no options left and therefore must fight to the death and and you know i'm sure i'm sure you and i can both like from our own experiences exactly that yeah. time when when you feel like you're just a single person against this weight of this system this uh, hegemonicon and 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 you've got you've got you're you're in a dire desperate desolate hopeless situation but in fact you're not because what's happened is that you found that you know the heart the, the inner resolve that you have yeah. autonomy, you have uh, sovereignty over your own life, and that this whole uh, software input from early childhood, that you have to find um, the authority to obey and uh, comply to and bow yeah. under, is is a, a fake, a phony, um, uh, subservient slavery
1: uh, yeah. Yeah. message. Well, I, you know, when you said that, I reminded of the introduction to our show we broadcast yesterday because I used the example when I was a kid, I was learning how to swim. My swimming instructor, I was only seven years old. He literally throws me in the deep end of the pool. And then he keeps pushing me away with a pole. And I'm, you know, and I kept yelling for help and nobody would help me. But suddenly in that desperate situation, something intrinsic took over and I began to swim. Because the desperate situation, like you say, evokes a new power and courage and an equality we didn't know we had. That's kind of like in microcosm what happens in our life. We want our people in a in an inescapable situation because then you fight to the death, and Sun Tzu says you need to put your soldiers in that position because that's when they find their true resolve and their true power, when their backs are to the wall and they know we're going to die unless we fight back. That's when you see the power of people. So we want to encourage that in people, know how to, to – to, Again, any commander knows how to maneuver the situation to exploit our advantages and all the disadvantages of the enemy. So, I mean, um, that's what we've got to do all the time. And, and, uh, you know, that's kind of the purpose of all our books, to train people how to do that, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: 17, never reflect the weakness of your people. Victory is won by the seasoned veterans in your ranks who lead the rest. The, this, the clarity, leadership, and will of experienced commanders determines the outcome of any battle. Now, I, I don't want to embarrass you, Kev, but you know, in these uh, global alliance meetings we've been having, people people really look to you because they know that you're a seasoned veteran and that you have that uh, unshakable will, and and that I, I I can feel that reverberate you know out from from the the situation, and and that but in saying that, there's also that that guerrilla philosophy that there are no in, in terms of rank and position leaders, but, but there is um, a healthy uh, centrifugal force that, that comes off, right. you know, you, you
1: as a very seasoned uh, leader. Right. So we're like the yeast, okay, and and the whole point is we're all rising, right? But um, the important thing is, yeah, we've got to recognize that We've got to look to veterans, but not as a blueprint. Not as a substitute for what people themselves need to do, and not to develop a dependency. Like, well, let's go check with Kevin what the right answer is. Right, right. And that's not, to not come on. ever how we grow. Because <laughs> I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm chucking out things that are that are wrong. But we need to be inspired by our elders, and that's why indigenous people traditionally uh, hold up the elders as, as a source of wisdom. Like the clan mothers, the grandmothers would 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 really run the society, not in our way, hierarchically, but just in the, in that based on wisdom experience. So, so people can go out and learn and do it, you know, in their own way, and so that's kind of the general kind of take on that. But yeah, it's it's true what you're saying. Never repeat okay. successful
0: tactics with the same enemy, or it will adapt to them and turn those methods against you. You know, this again, you, you look back to, to history and you see that our enemy know your enemy are, are repeating themselves again and again and again you hear phrases like false flag problem reaction solution uh crisis actors this kind of thing and they've been crying wolf the same way for a long long time and we're, we're wise to it publicly you know people can easily call upon uh aspects of of just recent history uh one, one that springs to mind you know i don't know how much you know about it but over here we had the arthur scargill um strikes with the coal miners you know they. Right. They they no. attacked the unions. I think Reagan did the same in the states at the same time. You know, perhaps a coordinated right. attack on, on the unions, country. but but we're no. we're wise to that now. Right.
1: Well, you know, don't forget the state power versus the people, and um, for the state, they need to keep repeating it all the time because that's the way that they reinforce their psychological hold over people. They say, "Look, we can go kill anybody we want. Look, we can murder eighty thousand children." and issue an apology and a bit of money and get away with it. They keep doing that because the control of, of violence is the basis of a power of any state. right? On the other hand, we can't repeat our tactics because they're wise to them already, and we have to always outthink them. And it's very possible to outthink them. It's easy to identify a state. Uh, the the methods of a state power because they've got a set protocol they've got to follow all the time. They can't ever deviate from it. So we can run rings around them like a guerrilla movement does. We can strike. They have to defend from us against us at every point. They don't know where we're going to strike, and so they, they're dissipated that way. Their their strength, their, their attention is dissipated. So the, the, the fact is we have to always come up with new tactics because we're, you know, in a different situation than they are. So that's one thing to remember. And that's why, going back to the previous point, we can never reflect the weakness of our of our, the people in our ranks. We can't go down to the level of the lowest it's based on fear. And, and so you've got to raise people up all the time to the level of the highest, like we talked about. And you do that by getting people to think creatively. And, you know, when you do that, I'll give you an example. Um, at first in our movement, we did the usual thing, uh, say, with the churches. We, we held protests, and the cops would show up, and nothing would happen, right, we talked to a few people, and one day, one of the Native elders, the way the sit-ins actually started, we were at an Anglican church in downtown Vancouver, and it was raining outside, and this one Native elder said, "The hell with this, I'm going inside, (laughs) and so we all went with her, getting out of the rain, we had our signs, we are standing there in the church lobby, and they're all looking at us, like, who are these strangers, right, and uh, I mean, the last thing they wanted in a church were a bunch of poor people and poor Indians, right, so... And then we said, hey, come on, let's go in and talk to the people. So then we started infiltrating. To, but we did it to get in out of the rain. And then we said, hey, wait a minute, let's build on this. You know, none of us thought about that, but circumstances evoke that wisdom that, you know, when you get stuck in, rut, in a rut in a way of thinking and acting, you know, institutionalized activism, you know, it, we, we got to, the, the universe keeps intervening and say, uh-uh, no, go over here and do it this way, guys. Right. And they freaked out that day. They didn't know what to do. The cops were standing outside impotently. The the, the priest is standing there, what do I do? You know, like, and it, it made the headlines and there was a lot of humor about it. It was great, right? But right. you gotta follow that lead. You know? Prompted by Mother Nature. <laughs> right. Thank you,
0: Rain and And what you're saying about the uh the the clergy the priests and and the cops exploit the inflexibility the rigidity and slower movements of the bigger enemy by outmaneuvering, outpacing and outthinking it you know they 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 wanted to to check the policies right uh, what's what's the you know, flag comes up no prior experience to to
1: what 's going on here right it 's not in the rule book <laughs> what do we do exactly and and that 's why I like that uh you know that when we were talking in that interview the, the sh- shit in tactic at the airport where they just occupied okay. all the toilets <laughs> at the airport. <laughs> well where is the airport most weak? It's not in their administrative office. It's all the toilets. Because if you shut those down, nobody between the flights has a chance to piss or or crap. And it's mayhem. And and so find out the equivalent in any system what's going to cause the most damage and pain to the enemy. And you hit that. You, you know you're you never polite. They never are. <laughs> you know you never uh act out of consideration, but where are they weakest, where is it gonna most hurt them? Right. Uh number eight,
0: we we mentioned touched on a little earlier, never act defensively. There is no reliable defense in battle for a defensive posture invites attack. Now Ed and I again, you know, we, we we've been having our chats reading our book and one of one of my points that he disagrees with is is that uh protests are um backing up, supporting the authority of, uh, the regime of, of the, um, uh, the attorney and, and the, in doing so tells the, uh, the enemy that we are just asking for them to rule us differently or, or you know, oh,
1: right. change their minds on, 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 a certain amount of things. Um, it's whereas, both, you know, generally it's true what you're saying. I mean, uh, that you can't ever ask for anything from the system. That's thinking defensively. But it also depends the leadership element there. You know, I've seen two different situations. The leaders of a protest, when they get up and say, we demand this, we demand that. Again, that's get your hand out. You're asking for something. They ignore you, and you're deflated, right? Um, But I've also seen a leadership element, and it's usually just springing from the grassroots. The unofficial leaders get up and say, to hell with this. Let's seize the building. Let's take over the church. Let's do this, and we're not budging at all. We're just taking it over, and that's uncontrollable. When you have that leadership element that says we're taking it back, we're not asking for anything, then a, a protest can be amazing. Then it's right. the start of a revolution. You're taking it over. So it's a question of, again, leadership. What are you saying to people? Are you empowering them or, ask, or making them more dependent? That's always the issue, right? Exactly, and, and and this was was Ed's point was was that it 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 uh, creates this great uh,
0: throng yeah. of of morale and spirit, and then you know you have the, the the different way of doing it, such as the Occupy movements, was that twenty eleven, something like that, Right. Uh, yeah. where no nobody budged, they just occupied, right? They you know like the toilets at the airport, but but on a on a global scale, pretty much, and and that really scared him because it was it was a new yeah. tactic, a
1: surprise maneuver, right? Like to sit in with the autoworkers. workers. Uh, you know, in, in, in Detroit in in the 30s when they took over the plant or in in France in the 30s, in the popular front, they did the same thing, the occupation of the factories. They just took over the factories and said, what are you going to do now? We control your wealth. You know, they should never have left. They should have started running the factories on a different basis, right? Yeah. And that's – you build that counter economy. You say, we, can, we will show you how we can operate it differently. And it's like when the uh, – back in the 1800s when the eight-hour movement began, and people, you know, working fourteen hours in a in a sweatshop, they said, No, after eight hours, we're not asking for anything. After eight hours, we all stop work. We all walk off after eight hours. You want to fire all of us? Who's going to run your factory? Okay. You stick together and you just create the new situation you want. And that's but the problem is the labor movement got pacified. You think we always have to ask for something. That's that's why they brought in, you know, one of the things that, that was the death knell of the labor movement was Right after World War Two, they brought in what's called the union dues checkoff. So the 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 unions got their money because the boss would auto and the government would automatically check off union dues from their paycheck. So you created a new class of union leaders who weren't dependent on the workers anymore. They were dependent on the state. And, you know, the so then very craftily made them an arm of the state, right? Just like they make the churches an arm of the state with their tax exempt status, right? So we break that all the time. We've got to break those ba- yeah. those connections to the state all the time with, with new forms of action and organization, right? And, and this is the, the age-old chess game. You, 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 you make
0: the point uh, regularly that you know, when there's a lot of steam, you've got you to channel it into a piston. Well, that piston then creates right. uh, a requirement for – delegates leaders representatives spokespeople you know whatever label you want to give it that that piston needs to come or or seems to uh naturally go into a a a smaller group for want of a a better phrase and then if that group can then get influenced or or corrupted or or, um bribed or whatever it is then you know the unions the soviets the uh whatever you want to call them the these the throng of the public the throng of the uh people uh you know how it's channeled and where it's channeled becomes the the all-important question again you know i've mentioned it a few times i I think donald trump is a very interesting character at the moment because he seems to uh call upon patriotism of of the usa but you know can
1: he be trusted? But you know, he, he 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 wanted people to be injected, right? He's appealing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he's tied into the whole. He is the corporate system. But the point is, he's very crafty because he knows that Americans have a very populist undercurrent. They don't like government. They don't like people telling them what to do. So he milks that, just like you know, uh, you know, religious leaders do, right? They know how to milk people and lead them and it's interesting your um, enemy. after Bush they brought in Obama to kind of corral the the liberal left element to keep them tied into the state after Obama and they, they bring in Trump to corral the, the the right-wing element and keep them tied to the state I mean it's it's the same game playing out but he's saying what people want to hear so he's their new Messiah and I remember uh, a presidential candidate the only one I, I ever admired was a guy called Eugene Debs He ran for the Socialist Party and the populist movement in America in 1920. He was in prison when he ran for president. He got three million votes. But he had this great saying, uh, Eugene Debs said, I will not be a Moses to lead you into the promised land because then I could lead you out again. You have to do it through your own action and have no leaders. And, you know, that anarchist idea is something the system can't handle because they need leaders to control people through, right? Right. And, and also, uh, we, we've got over here the Houses of Parliament, right? And and if
0: they can funnel everybody through that, you know, bullshit talking shop of, of Westminster, yeah. the, it's the Palace, right? Palace of Westminster. The People's Party is the Labour Party over in Britain, in London. And they've got a Sir Keir Starmer running the show, right? And since since Tony Blair in the 90s, you know, it's it, a lot of people call it tory light conservative light it's basically the the right wingers but it's just a, a sort of um uh, you know di- a little bit diluted version of it well i was i was chatting again with, with ed when we were in our book uh that if this kind of very left guy bernie sanders sort of character jeremy corbyn hadn't arrived then all those uh lefty voters would have had a few decades without any hope whatsoever of of their you know philosophy, if you like, having uh, a figurehead or a leader or this kind of thing. So it, so right. it begs the question: Was Jeremy Corbyn uh, a necessary uh, sort of e- emergency character f- to maintain the uh, the,
1: yes. the interest in in the Palace of Westminster bullshit? Absolutely. That's the role, That's traditionally the role of the labor or social democratic leaders. I saw this in person in 1983. There was a general strike in British Columbia, biggest in Canadian history. 100,000 workers out on strike because this right-wing government brought in policies trashing labor legislation, human rights, you know, and it created this huge groundswell. Well, the NDP, which is the equivalent of the Labor Party, they got the backing of the unions and all that. The NDP managed that strike to make sure nothing changed. And there were, I remember I was standing with 80,000 other people in an amazing protest. We filled up the Vancouver downtown areas. You couldn't see the end of it. It was this—it was like a revolution, right? And the NDP with a labor leader called Jack Monroe, they make an inside deal with the government getting one of the five non-negotiable demands. They get their one demand, and they tell everyone to go home. And we all did. Everybody went home when one guy told them to. Now, the question isn't why did he sell out, because that was his, his role structurally to do that. The question is why did 80,000 people go home? Okay. Why didn't they say, fuck you, we're staying in the street, we're going to take over, right? Because they were conditioned from
0: childhood to, the to follow the authority of the leader that they they, they, they decided on the authority, right? You know, similarly with, yeah. with Jeremy Corbyn over here. I, I I've never been a fan of the guy, even though, you know, a lot of – Sort of altruistic people think he think he he was a a good guy in in the political system, but you know as an alienated parent and got huge complaints about the the family legal system, the these corrupt courts that you know sever families apart. He he wrote an open letter to the public because he was getting so much you know requests. To, to do something about it, as, as the People's Party guy, he, he wrote an open letter saying, no, I'm not going to do anything about it. Well, you know, that tells told me everything about the
1: guy. Well, it was a total fraud. It, yeah, and it's also not just because people are conditioned to obey authority, which is true, it's because they don't see an alternative. And if there had to be an organized leadership, and we tried. We had small little groups that were trying that. We weren't big enough. We were lost in this huge of 80,000 people. If you had a truly revolutionary group organized beforehand, with roots in the community, you could say to people, "Screw that! Follow up. We're, we've got this counter hegemonic movement building over here. That's why we've got to build our assemblies now and create the alternative now. So when the crisis moment comes, there's an alternative, you know. And and so you know that 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 whole thing about uh, the, the labor party and that that's their role to contain the masses. That's yep. that's historically what they've done right to hold it all together right and and the other thing we know know your enemy you know
0: back to the the initial point uh we've, we've got this leadership soap opera pantomime you know going on at the moment is boris johnson going to come back you know liz Truss was in for a couple of weeks blah 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 blah, blah you know etc 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 and the whole thing is covering up this act of parliament that's gone and gone under the radar with regards to the media which which basically um it's telling the police, don't even worry about the courts anymore. You know, if if, you, if we give you orders to throw people in the back of the van and to, you know, uh, dr- draconian uh, hardline police yep. stuff, go for it. But nobody's talking about that because cause the soap opera's in place. So know your enemy. Distraction.
1: Yeah. Distraction over here, whether well, you get screwed over here. I mean, that's the standard thing. But I remember in the, there was a London docker strike in 1890 or something. The whole city was was shut down. And Tom Mann, one of the strike leaders, the soldiers were brought in to break the strike. And they issued a letter that got him thrown in prison for years. It was addressed to the soldiers, and they say, don't shoot. You're the sons of working people. We're out here for you. Don't shoot. Turn your guns on the real enemy, right? He was calling what they were doing a few years later in Russia, right? Turn the guns around, folks um and so that's the appeals we got to make to the police look there's going to be a, an, an answering for what you're doing one day right there's an account of an accounting that's going to happen and you got to come on the side of the people so how about this one then that they their, their enemy they know
0: us um, and what's happening is that they're doing a surprise attack on us at the moment, whereby popping up all over the world, Australia, London, I've heard as well, I'm sure over with you with, the, with this uh, West Coast Chinese thing, that the, there's Chinese police stations uh, popping up yep. around the place. Should we, should we close on that one?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that, again, a PSYOPs. That's showing them that we have the right to go anywhere. Uh, in Canada, Canada and Australia are on the front lines because China needs them so badly. Geographically, they need to take in Australia as part of the whole Southeast Asia empire, Canada for the resources, right, and as a backdoor into the U.S. Uh, So, yeah, those are front lines now, but um, this has been going on for a long time. The Chinese, like the Americans, have operated openly in Canada for a long time. They're just waving the flag more that way and saying, see, we're running things. But perfect target, guys should go in and shut down and say, you know, we never gave you permission to build here. Let's start occupying these Chinese cop shops, right? I mean, like, give them the walking papers. It, everything is an opportunity. Instead of thinking defensively, we're being attacked. Think offensively. How can we use this to to uh, turn the tables on them? All right. Yeah. Right. And and you know, as a, as a closing point, it, it tells me uh, if
0: if they're having to bring in Chinese police stations, that the native cops aren't with them. Right.
1: Right. but that's true. Otherwise, we Apple need. Them- says, that whole thing is broken down. You see, that's the reality. If you stay in the bubble of their Internet and their controlled media, you see a certain thing. When you go down to the ground, you see something very different. And their whole system is falling apart in Canada. They know that. And that's why the Chinese are moving in so quick, to replace it. So, yeah, Try to, at least. That's why we have Canada. <laughs> yeah. Public of Canada.
0: Okay, good place to stop. Cheers, Kev. We've done the hour. Uh,
1: okay. Chat, chat soon. See you on the weekend. Thanks, everyone.